1: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, January 16, 2024. The Senate returns the session after the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday to work on another short-term government funding extension to prevent a partial shutdown at the end of the week. The House is back as well, taking up relatively non-controversial bills. No roll call votes today, though, due to the snowstorms across the country making travel difficult. And the federal government was also closed because of the snow in the D.C. area. House and Senate tax writing committees unveil an $80 billion bipartisan bill that will expand the child tax credit and restore business tax breaks. We'll talk about it with Tobias Burns, economics reporter with The Hill, what's in the bill and its chance of becoming law. In the race for the Republican presidential nomination, Asa Hutchinson suspends his campaign after a sixth place finish in the Iowa caucuses Monday. As Donald Trump, who finished first, goes to New York City to attend his defamation trial from Eugene Carroll. Ron DeSantis, who was second in Iowa, heads to South Carolina, and Nikki Haley, who was third, goes to New Hampshire. White House says President Joe Biden will meet with the Democratic and Republican leaders of the House and Senate at the White House on Wednesday to talk about his national security spending proposal, which includes aid for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, as Senate negotiators continue negotiating about U.S. border security, which Republicans want to include in that package. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, forcing a vote on the Senate floor that could suspend all aid to Israel. He's protesting Israel's war in Gaza. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan talks about U.S. efforts to stop or slow down attacks from Houthi militants in Yemen on ships in the Red Sea. And a U.S. Supreme Court case over whether a rancher in Texas who says a state road project Caused his land to be susceptible to severe flooding, can sue the state under the U.S. Constitution's Fifth Amendment requirement that property takings receive just compensation. Story from CNN Lawmakers are racing the clock to avert a partial shutdown, which is four days until funding for key government agencies expires. To prevent a shutdown, the House and Senate must pass a short-term funding extension this week to allow more time for full-year appropriations bills to be negotiated and passed. Congressional leaders announced over the weekend that the short-term funding extension will set up two new funding deadlines on March 1st and March 8th. The Senate is gearing up for a procedural vote to advance the short-term funding extension Tuesday evening. The vote is expected to succeed. But a time agreement will still need to be reached to schedule a final passage vote before Friday. If any senator objects, that could slow the process and threaten a shutdown. That was from CNN. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, spoke about this on the Senate floor.
2: Over the weekend, congressional leadership reached a bipartisan agreement on a clean extension of government funding until March 1st and March 8th, which will prevent a government shutdown. The focus of this week will be to pass this extension as quickly as we can. Time is of the essence. If we don't act soon, the government will run out of funding at midnight this Friday, January 19th, just a few days away. So today, the Senate will take the first vote to move forward on the clean CR, putting the Senate on a path to pass the CR before Friday's deadline. If both sides continue to work in good faith, I'm hopeful that we can wrap up work on the CR no later than Thursday. The key to finishing our work this week will be bipartisan cooperation in both chambers. You can't pass these bills without support from Republicans and Democrats in both the House and the Senate. And passing a clean CR this week is important for two main reasons. First, passing the CR, of course, will avert a harmful and unnecessary government shutdown. No reasonable member on either side, Democrat or Republican, wants a government shutdown. Both sides recognize that a government shutdown would mean crushing delays to veterans programs, nutrition programs for women, infants, and children, delayed benefits for our military, and so much more. Second, passing the CR will give our appropriators time to finish drafting all 12 bills to reflect our bipartisan agreement. Congressional leaders have already agreed to a top-line number that will protect critical priorities like housing, veterans' benefits, health care, nutrition programs, and more. We want to move forward as quickly as we can to turn this top-line number into legislation. But everyone knows we need more time. Now, while most Democrats and Republicans want to avoid a shutdown, a small group of hard-right extremists seem dead set on making a shutdown a reality with little leverage to actually enact their agenda, these extremists have tried again and again to bully the speaker, bully their own Republican colleagues, and bully the country into accepting their hard right views. That's it. The only tactic the hard right has in its playbook is to bully everyone else into submission, just like Donald Trump does. And the reason's simple. Most senators, most congressmen, Democrat, and Republican, do not accept that their draconian cuts will be good for America. So the only thing they can do is bully because they can't convince, they can't win over people by argument. So bullying seems to be their way to go.
1: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, today on the Senate floor. The proposed continuing resolution to extend government funding and avoid that shutdown broken into two parts, as the Majority Leader said. For March 1st, that would be deadline for four appropriations bills. Agriculture Rural Development FDA, Energy and Water Development, Military Construction, Veterans Affairs, and Transportation, Housing and Urban Development. And from March eighth, the remaining eight appropriations bills Commerce, Justice, Science, Defense, Financial Services and General Government, Homeland Security, Interior Environment, Labor, Health and Human Service, Health and Human Services Education, Legislative Branch, and State and Foreign Operations. Here's the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, on the Senate floor.
3: House and Senate negotiators work hard to reach an agreement on top-light government funding levels for the current fiscal year. And work continues to deliver full-year appropriations through regular order. Shutting down the government, even part of it, would interrupt this important progress. That's why today the Senate will begin the process of passing a short term extension of government funding to allow this work to continue. I'm grateful that the Speaker of the House was able to secure serious rollbacks on reckless spending, but it remains to be seen whether the Biden administration intends to get serious on its responsibility to provide for the common defense. For three straight years, the president has turned in budget requests with real dollar cuts to funding America's armed forces. Even a quick glance around the world shows how little we can afford to shortchange the men and women tasked with defending the United States and our interests. We need to take this responsibility seriously.
1: Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, on the Senate floor. The House Freedom Caucus posted on Sunday when the continuing resolution, the short-term funding, government funding bill, was unveiled. The House Republican leadership, they write, is planning to pass a short-term spending bill, continuing Pelosi levels with Biden policies to buy time to pass longer-term spending bills at Pelosi levels with Biden policies. This is what surrender looks like. Congressman Chip Roy, Republican from Texas, a member of the Freedom Caucus, spoke about the continuing resolution while campaigning with Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis in Greenville, South Carolina today. Also there, he'll mention him, Congressman Thomas Massey, Republican of Kentucky.
4: I mean, Thomas and I are beating our head against a brick wall in Washington. We've got friends and colleagues from South Carolina that we work with closely, guys like Ralph Norman and Jeff Duncan on the, uh, in the Freedom Caucus with me and some others down here but we're beating our head against the wall in Washington. Let me ask you a question, just a little little litmus test here. How many of you think that we should keep spending money at the levels Nancy Pelosi spent last year? Do no. You all think we should be spending at, you know, 1.6 trillion dollars and continuing to rack up debt to 34 trillion dollars of debt? Does anybody here think that? No. But yet right now that's exactly what Washington republicans in congress are going to do. And with all due respect to the current Speaker of the House and my current Republican colleagues, they are about to put on the floor of the House a bill to continue spending at Nancy Pelosi's spending levels. I find that abhorrent. And then they're going to do that to buy time to increase spending even further and to fund all of the things you don't want to fund. They're going to fund the United Nations at $12.5 billion, which continues to funnel money to Hamas. They're going to continue to fund all of the NGOs that are helping to move people illegally across our border. They're going to continue to fund the FBI that is attacking former President Trump, attacking American citizens like Scott Hauck, the father who was targeted by the FBI in Philadelphia. They're going to continue to fund the Department of Homeland Security to not secure the southern border of the United States, to keep giving money to Alejandro Mayorkas, to continue to allow fentanyl to pour into the communities and kill our kids, including, by the way, six kids in the school district that my wife and I live in southwest of Austin, Texas, last year alone. That is happening every day in Texas.
1: Congressman Chip Roy, Republican from Texas, today in Greenville, South Carolina. On Wall Street, the Dow down 231, NASDAQ down 28, S&P down 17. Headline at TheHill.com, House Senate tax chiefs announce deal on business deductions, low-income credits. Toby Burns is an economics reporter for The Hill, who wrote that story, joins us now on C-SPAN Radio. Thanks for being with us. What is in this proposed bill?
5: Well, what we're really seeing here is uh, an exchange for the child, an expanded uh, version of the child tax credit, um for uh, some business deductions that have been very important to to businesses around the country for the past couple of years um and uh this has been something that has been in the works actually for for a couple of years now we saw at the end of both last year and in 2022 a version of this um uh surface and uh and it didn't come to pass in in previous versions of these no- negotiations but now uh, tax writers, both from the Senate Finance Committee and from the uh, the House Ways and Means Committee, have something that uh, that they think could make it into law. And so uh, now it goes to to leadership.
1: This was announced by a Republican chair of the House Committee, a Democratic chair of the Finance Committee. Bipartisan. Is that unusual?
5: Um, y- yes, it is. But but the nature of these uh, deductions and and tax credits uh is such that they they have had uh, bipartisan uh, support. The um, initially the business credits were payfors uh, that mean meaning revenue raisers for the the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, which uh, significantly uh, lowered the uh, the corporate tax rate, and um, those those. Business credits, which are really about uh, depreciating costs and and uh, making uh, interest payments deductible and research uh, investments deductible you know th- those have had widespread uh, precedent and support in the business community for for a long time, so they have some bipartisan uh, backing there. And, and the, the child tax credit, uh, which was expanded under the, the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, also has report, uh, support from both Republicans and Democrats. So while while it's it's unusual to see this sort of uh, procedural push here, it's these tax credits are, are popular on both sides of the aisle.
1: When they announced this agreement, did they talk about whether it was paid for? What will it do to the budget deficit one way or the other?
5: Yeah. So um, it's a it's about a seventy to eighty billion dollar uh, expense uh, for both for this both of the main credits here, the the child tax credit and the business credit and um the way that they're proposing to pay for it is is by ending a uh, a program called the employee retention uh, tax credit, which, which there's a, has become quite controversial. It was one of these things that was boosted in the in the wake of the pandemic to make sure that people, um, you know, could could keep their jobs. Uh, there's the, a similar one in the paycheck uh, protection program, uh, but but since that you know uh, has really been been out there and businesses have baking, been making use. To, of it, um, there's been a, a lot of promotion and marketing around this, and and basically, it's turned into sort of a uh, a hotbed of of fraudulent business activity, with a lot of uh, people claiming this, a lot of business owners claiming this that that aren't really using it in the way that it's been intended uh, to be used. So they're going to get rid of this program, the the employee retention program, and they're going to use that to pay for uh, for these credits.
1: We're talking with Toby Burns from The Hill. You said that this now goes to leadership. Do we have any indication yet whether they'll accept it and how they might push it?
5: We don't. And we don't know about um, a vehicle for this. You know, we just had a continuing resolution passed over the weekend uh, and that will fund the government into March. Um, So we're not sure what exactly, uh, how exactly this could manifest in terms of a, a physical piece of, of legislation. Um, but, you know, some rank and file senators have have already said that uh, this is a good idea, that, that this is something that they'd be willing to consider. And there's also been some speculation that uh, which which this would be pretty rare, but before a tax bill to to make it to the floor uh, on its own, you know, as, as opposed to having uh, having it be included in a larger piece of legislation. So there's a lot happening on the budget side right now um, with with appropriators working to uh, to hash out 2024 deals. And, and so we could see it pop up in that context, and we could also see it pop up as a standalone.
1: And you also note in your article that tax season starts on January 29th. But we have seen when these bills pass, sometimes they make the provisions retroactive.
5: That's right. Yeah. Um, so some of the, the provisions in this bill, too, and it, and it doesn't just include, I should say, uh, it's not just the CTC and the, um, and the business credits. There's also some additional um, uh, uh disaster funding that's that's put in there there there's also a a deal uh, part of it is uh, on nixing double taxation for for taiwan as we as we move some uh, semiconductor manufacturing uh over to the u s and and give so we want to give uh lawmakers want to give an advantage to some of those taiwanese companies as well but but some of those provisions actually go back to twenty twenty three as well um so seeing some retroactive um, uh, action here is is possible as well.
1: Toby Burns is a reporter with The Hill covering economics policy, focus on taxes. You can find his stories at TheHill.com and on X at Toby Burns1. Thank you very much. Thank you. Campaign 2024 news after Monday night's Republican presidential caucuses in Iowa, in which the top three finishers were Donald Trump, 51%, Ron DeSantis, 21%, and Nikki Haley, 19%. Today, Asa Hutchinson, former Arkansas governor, suspended his presidential campaign. He came in sixth. He received fewer than 200 votes statewide. In a written statement, he said, My message of being a principled Republican with experience and telling the truth about the current frontrunner did not sell in Iowa. The person who came in fourth, Vivek Ramaswamy, 7%, dropped out Monday night endorsing Donald Trump. Donald Trump was the big winner Monday night, and he spoke to his supporters in Des Moines.
6: Well, I want to thank everybody. This has been some period of time. And most importantly, we want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. What a turnout. What a crowd. And I really think this is time now for everybody, our country, to come together. We want to come together. Uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, it would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing that's practically never been like this. It's uh, just so important, and I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. It's going to happen soon, too. It's going to happen soon. I want to thank uh, some of the great people. We have so many senators. If I go through every name, we'll be here all night and everybody's gonna get angry at me. But the senators, the congressmen from Washington, they came down from all different states. I want to thank you very much. I want to congratulate Ron and Nikki for having a good good time together. We're all having a good time together. (laughs) and uh i think they both actually did very well i really do i think they both did very well we don't even know what the outcome of second place is and uh i see carrie lake congratulations carrie i spotted her i have to announce because she's terrific she's gonna be a senator a great senator i predict right you're gonna be a great senator and uh I also want to congratulate Vivek, because he did a hell of a job. He came from uh, zero, and he's uh, got a big percent, probably 8%, almost 8%, and that's an amazing job. They all did. They're all very smart, very smart people, very capable people. I think most importantly, I want to thank my incredible wife, uh, first lady, I'll say former and maybe future... But more important than Melania, I want to thank her incredible, beautiful mother who passed away a few days ago. And she's up there, way up there. She's looking down and she's so proud of us. And I just want to say to Amalia, you are special. One of the most special people I've ever known.
1: Donald Trump, former president and 2024 Republican presidential candidate in Des Moines, Iowa, Monday night after winning the Republican caucuses there. Donald Trump heading to New Hampshire for a rally tonight, but earlier today was in New York City. This from Associated Press. Donald Trump shook his head in disgust Tuesday as the judge in his New York defamation trial told prospective jurors that another jury had already decided that the former president sexually abused columnist E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. Later, when the judge asked during jury selection if anyone felt he had been treated unfairly by the court system, Trump raised his hand slyly. The gesture drew laughter from the crowd and a comment from the judge, who told Trump, We know how you feel. Trump fired off a series of social media posts about the defamation case after arriving to the courthouse Tuesday via motorcade and entering through a special entrance not usually used by the public. Posting on his Truth social platform, Trump wrote that Carol's rape allegation was an attempted extortion involving fabricated lies and political shenanigans. He accused the judge of having absolute hatred for him. That from Associated Press. Ron DeSantis, Florida governor and Republican presidential candidate, he came in second in the Iowa caucuses last night, made a stop today in Greenville, South Carolina. South Carolina will be holding its Republican presidential primary on February 24th. Between now and then are New Hampshire, Nevada, and the Virgin Islands. And Ron DeSantis celebrated his second place.
7: To be back in South Carolina. Coming from Iowa, believe me, this weather is balmy. <laughs> we were negative temperatures through the weekend and, um, and into the caucus night. And, you know, they threw everything but the kitchen sink at me uh, during, this, during this process. They've spent almost $50 million against me. That's more than has been spent against Biden and Trump combined. Uh, the media nonstop. And all they were trying to do is knock me out. Um, And, you know, Nikki Haley said only the top two from Iowa, you know, go on to be viable. Well, guess what? We punched our ticket out of Iowa yesterday.
1: Ron DeSantis at a cafe at the airport in Greenville, South Carolina. He also held a news conference at the statehouse in Columbia, according to his press release, highlighting work being done in the state to protect women's sports. Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor, also Republican presidential candidate, said Monday night in West Des Moines that although she came in third in the Iowa caucuses looking at the contests ahead she sees herself as the only viable alternative to Donald Trump.
8: At one point in this campaign there were 14 of us running. I was at two percent in the polls but tonight Iowa did what Iowa always does so well. The pundits will analyze the results from every angle. We get that. But when you look at how we're doing in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, and beyond, safely say, tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Tonight, tonight, I will be back in the great state of New Hampshire. And the question before Americans is now very clear. Do you want more of the same? Or do you want a new generation of conservative leadership? truth to America. And here's another one. I voted for Donald Trump twice. I was proud to serve in his administration. But when I say more of the same, you know what I'm talking about. It's both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. They have more in common than you think. 70% of Americans don't want another Trump-Biden rematch.
1: Nikki Haley, Monday night in West Des Moines, Iowa, and she does have a rally planned for tonight in New Hampshire. In a statement today, she said that she would only participate in debates from now on that include Donald Trump or President Biden. She writes, we've had five great debates in this campaign. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has ducked all of them. He has nowhere left to hide. The next debate I do will either be with Donald Trump or with Joe Biden. I look forward to it. There are two scheduled this week ahead of Monday's New Hampshire primary on ABC News on Thursday and on CNN on Sunday. Nikki Haley, Ronda Santos, and Donald Trump all invited. And now ABC News says they plan to cancel that Thursday debate. Also, some news about Hunter Biden. This from Politico. House Republicans have paused their efforts to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress as they negotiate a new date for a closed-door interview. The House Rules Committee will no longer tee up a contempt resolution for a floor vote during his meeting on Tuesday, two people familiar with the decision told Politico. Contrary to Republicans' previous plans, a leadership aide familiar with the decision granted an anonymity to discuss internal deliberations, added The negotiations are now underway for him to comply with the subpoena. So we are holding on the contempt vote while they work to set a date. That from Politico, Hunter Biden was subpoenaed in the President Joe Biden impeachment inquiry. Washington Today continues in a moment.
0: Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean.
9: Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word.
0: Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org connect and subscribe to Word for Word today.
9: Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale
0: system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free. A spokesperson for House Speaker Mike Johnson and the White House confirming today that President Joe Biden has invited the top four congressional leaders to the White House on Wednesday to discuss the President's request for national security supplemental funding that includes aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. The four invited are Speaker Johnson, a Republican, the House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat, and in the Senate, the Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, and the Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican. Bipartisan Senate negotiators have also been working on an agreement to increase U.S. border security, which has been a House and Senate Republican demand to be added to a supplemental national security spending bill. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre was asked at today's White House briefing, which was a teleconference, about Wednesday's meeting and whether it means a deal on U.S. border security is close.
10: As it relates to uh, the meeting that the president is having tomorrow here at the White House with congressional ranking members and leaders uh, to talk about the very important uh, supplemental request that this president made, as you know, a couple couple months ago. At this point, look, that supplemental request is obviously uh, continues to be mm-hmm. a top priority, uh, including right to, to, to secure our border, uh, including to to help Ukraine defend itself against Putin's ty- tyranny, as we all know, as we you all have covered for almost uh, two years now. And I will say that while the president is having this really important meeting tomorrow, negotiations on a bipartisan agreement on the border uh, as includes funding and policy are still ongoing. Uh, So that is, we believe is, is headed in the right direction, the right track. And so, and we're gonna continue to say, right? Congress should act, they should act quickly. Uh, you know, this is about, uh, the securing our border. This is about our national security, uh, and the consequences of congressional inaction would be severe. So the president, yes, is going to have this all important, uh, conversation, he believes, on the supplemental request, uh, uh, obviously as it relates to our national security, but negotiations, uh, continue, uh, and so that is also really important. A bipartisan, uh, agreement is needed, and, and so we're doing those negotiations on the Senate level, as you, as you all know.
1: The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on a teleconference. CNN reports that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a passionate plea to leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, urging them not to allow Russia's war in Ukraine to become frozen. Speaking in person at the conference for the first time since Russia launched its full-scale invasion nearly two years ago, Zelensky said Ukraine had defied expectations in repelling Moscow's forces for so long that And that its allies know what's needed to allow progress on the ground, which has been in short supply for many months. That was from CNN. Here's President Zelensky.
11: This year must be be decisive. Can freezing the war in Ukraine be its end? I don't want to settle for the truism that any frozen conflict will eventually reignite and i remind you that after after 2014 there were attempts to freeze the war in donbas there were very very influential guarantors of those of those by, by the way of those president than chancellor of germany and the presidents of france but putin putin is a predator who is not satisfied with the frozen products and we have to defend ourselves, our children, our houses, our lives. And we, we have to do it and we can beat him on the ground. We have proved it and at sea and in the skies. And we ramp up production of weapons. We achieved economic growth in Ukraine, our GDP. Is moving up despite the war, plus more than 5% last year. And we got the decision on EU accession negotiations, and we are normalizing the idea that the aggression can be defeated, even Putin's aggressions, which have been ongoing for 10 years and more. And now we, we can say, don't escalate to all who doubt, to all who want to reduce support.
1: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Reuters reports that he met senior officials earlier on the sidelines of the forum, including U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, NATO's Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg, and international investors such as executives from J.P. Morgan. Jake Sullivan also gave a speech at Davos and sat down for an interview covering many topics. One was the ongoing drone and missile attacks on ships in the Red Sea by Houthi rebels in Yemen, supported by Iran. And they say they're doing those attacks in support of Palestinians in the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. The U.S. today conducted airstrikes against Houthi targets for the third time in a week. Here's Jake Sullivan.
7: One of the things that people are very worried about now is, of course, uh, the situation in the Red Sea. Maybe you could say a few words about that. Uh, Do you think this will get better in the coming weeks? Or do we have to fasten the seatbelt and this will be complex in the year to come in the Red Sea? Well, first, you know, as I said in my speech... um, This goes way beyond being a regional challenge. This is a global challenge. We're talking about a vital artery of global commerce, uh, a critical maritime choke point uh, that's being held hostage, and countries and companies that have nothing to do with the Middle East whatsoever are being affected, more than 50 nations in nearly 30 attacks. And so it's a. It's a crisis that the whole world needs to respond to, and, frankly, the UN Security Council did come through with a very strong resolution condemning these attacks and calling for the Houthis to stop. Now, um, we mobilized a coalition of countries to take strikes to degrade the Houthis' capabilities so their ability to mount uh, sustained and complex attacks uh, becomes more difficult over time. We did not say when we launched our attacks, they're going to end once and for all. The Houthis will be fully deterred. We anticipated the Houthis would continue to try to hold this critical artery at risk. And we continue to reserve the right to take further action. But this needs to be an all-hands-on-deck effort. And frankly, the answer to your question about how long this goes on and how bad it gets comes down not just to the decisions of the countries in the coalition that took strikes last week, But the broad set of countries, including those with influence in Tehran and influence in other capitals in the Middle East, making this a priority to indicate that the entire world rejects wholesale uh, the idea that a group like the Houthis can basically hijack the world as they are doing. And so we want to work with countries across the board, countries who are allies and partners, countries who are not in the common interest to get this to stop.
1: White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Back in Washington, this from The Hill.com. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, will use a little-known provision in the Foreign Assistance Act to force the Senate to vote Tuesday on a measure that would freeze military aid to Israel unless the State Department produces a report on potential human rights abuses in Gaza. If adopted, Sanders' resolution would require the State Department to report any human rights violations committed during Israel's blockade and invasion of Gaza in the aftermath of the October 7th attacks on Israeli civilians. U.S. assistance to Israel would be frozen if the State Department fails to produce a report after 30 days. The Hill article also says the resolution has little chance of becoming law because it must pass both chambers and be signed by president. President Biden. Senator Bernie Sanders was on CNN on Sunday talking about this resolution.
4: What is going on in Gaza right now is a horrendous humanitarian catastrophe. We're looking at 23,000 people who have been killed, almost 60,000 have been wounded, and two thirds of the people who have been killed are women and children. You're looking at 70 percent of the housing units in Gaza that have been destroyed. So my view has been from the beginning. Israel has a right to respond to this horrific terrorist attack from Hamas. But you do not have a right to go to war against an entire people, women and children. And the United States Congress has got to act because a lot of this destruction is being done with military weapons supplied by the United States of America.
1: Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, on CNN's State of the Union program on Sunday in anticipation of the vote tonight on his resolution. White House spokesperson John Kirby put out a statement opposing Senator Sanders. It reads, we do not believe that this resolution is the right vehicle to address these issues, and we don't think now is the right time. It's unworkable. Quite frankly, the Israelis have indicated they are preparing to transition their operations to a much lower intensity. And we believe that transition will be helpful both in terms of reducing civilian casualties as well as increasing humanitarian assistance. That statement from White House spokesperson John Kirby. John Kirby spoke about that lower intensity in a White House teleconference today. He also discussed the White House National Security Council coordinator for the Middle East, Brett McGurk, and his travels and discussions trying to broker another deal with Hamas concerning hostages.
5: Steve Holland with Reuters. Please go ahead.
12: Hey, John. Um, you mentioned the uh, Brett McGurk in Doha on hostages. What, could you give us any details of that? Is he seeking a pause in the fighting in exchange for hostages? Uh, are, how close are they to a deal? What, what What's going to happen? Um, and, and you mentioned that the Israelis have shifted to a low phase in northern Gaza. What are the prospects for that taking place across all of Gaza? Thanks, Steve. Um, so uh, on the uh, a new hostage deal, uh, what I can tell you is that we're working on this very, very diligently. That is why Brett was in Doha uh, this past week. Um, I, I don't want to get ahead of where we are, uh, but we are having, I would say, very seri- serious and uh, intensive discussions uh, uh, in Qatar about the possibility for uh, another deal. I- obviously, I, I want to be careful. I don't... Uh, Say too much publicly here as, as we have these these, these talks, but uh, we're hopeful that it can bear fruit uh, and bear fruit soon because there's still you know over 100 about 140 uh, hostages still being held. Um, as for the the your, your question about whether their shift to lower intensity operations can you know how fast that will spread across Gaza, that's really not a question I'm qualified to answer. The Israeli Defense Forces are are much better to speak to that. They just announced yesterday, as I said in my opening statement, the removal of a division, uh, full, a full division of Army troops uh, from from Gaza. We think that's a positive step forward in terms of getting to lower intensity ops. Uh, we hope that it will allow for the movement back into North Gaza, uh, because really the bulk of the of the operations are being conducted in in the South right now. So we hope that this removal of these troops and this announced transition that they've made that it will allow for people to flow back into North Gaza, um, alleviate some of that pressure in the South, particularly around Khan communists. Um, and we'll see where it goes from there. But again, I, I wouldn't want to get ahead of Israeli military
1: planning. John Kirby is Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council on a teleconference today. And after he held that briefing, the Times of Israel reports that Qatar formally announced its successful mediation of an agreement between Israel and Hamas to deliver medication to the hostages in Gaza. This is Washington Today. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral argument today in a case involving a cattle rancher near Houston, Texas, who says his land is prone to serious flooding because the Texas Department of Transportation did renovations to a nearby interstate. The issue before the U.S. Supreme Court is not whether Richie Devillier deserves compensation and how much, but whether he can sue Texas under the takings clause of the U.S. Constitution's Fifth Amendment, absent a law authorizing that type of suit. Here is Supreme Court Justice Samuel Leto questioning Robert McNamara, attorney for Robert DeVillier.
2: The language of the takings clause is quite similar to the language of the due process clause in the Fifth Amendment, which immediately precedes it. Uh, No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So why should they be read differently with respect to the creation of a cause of action?
9: I, I don't think they have to be read differently, Your Honor. I think if there's an ongoing due process violation, a plaintiff could bring an ex parte young action. Ex parte young was not a 1983 action. It no, not an action. ex parte young, but a claim for damages. Well, I, I think that's the difference here, that we're not seeking damages, we're seeking just compensation. Uh, we're not saying there was a past completed violation of the Constitution and we want something to offset that. We're saying the government has taken property, which gives rise to a present duty to pay just compensation. And we want the present obligation enforced, not a backwards looking damages remedy concocted or created. And I think that entitlement to just compensation is how the framers would have understood the Fifth Amendment. The alternative view, the idea that all you get are injunctions, I don't think squares with either the text or how contemporary commentators talked about the clause.
1: Attorney Robert McNamara, questioned by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito in the case today de Villiers v. Texas. Aaron Nielsen is the Texas Solicitor General. He argued that Texas cannot be sued under this part of the Constitution.
13: The court will be hard-pressed to find any government more committed to property than Texas. The Texas Constitution is more protective than the federal Constitution, and Texas courts under a Texas cause of action adjudicate takings claims under both constitutions. This appeal thus isn't about substantive rights. All petitioners had to do was use Texas' cause of action. Instead, petitioners insist they can bring a cause of action directly under the Federal Takings Clause itself. This argument is wrong for many reasons. For one, it ignores what the Constitution says. Governments must provide just compensation, but the Takings Clause says nothing about how they must do it, whether through commissions, private bills, or litigation. For another, this court held in Williams that Congress may constitutionally—and I'm going to quote here—quote retained for itself the power to hear and determine controversies respecting claims against the United States. End quote. It follows that again, a quote: there is no constitutional right to a judicial remedy. Period. End quote. As petitioners concede, Congress did just that for nearly a century. We don't see how this court could hold for petitioners without overruling Williams.
1: Aaron Nielsen, Texas Solicitor General, arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court. In today's case, DeVille v. Texas, you can find the full oral argument, they only provide audio, at our website at cspan.org. From NBC News, the Supreme Court on Tuesday declined for now to weigh in on the contentious issue of bathroom access for transgender students by rejecting an Indiana school district's appeal the court left in place an appeals court ruling that required a middle school in Martinsville, Indiana, to allow a transgender boy to use the bathroom that corresponds with his gender identity. At issue was whether either the Constitution's 14th Amendment, which says that the laws apply equally to everyone, or Title IX, the federal law that prohibits sex discrimination in education, protects transgender students in that context, reporting from NBC News. And thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, word for word. It's free. And get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c connect. Have a good night.